1: Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you so much for being with us. Great panel of journalists to talk about uh, the news today, starting with Patricia Murphy, my Friday partner on the show. She, of course, is a political reporter and writes the Political Insider column about politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Patricia oversees the Jolt which every day brings us the latest um, up-to-the-minute news about politics. Um, and, and Patricia also, we have to say, is an example of, of someone who knows how to balance work and home life. She not only gets the jolt out by like seven thirty eight o'clock in the morning, but gets her two children off to school as well, I'm sure, with your husband's help, Patricia. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. It takes a village around here, Bill.
1: I'm really glad to have you here. Um, Your your colleague, uh, Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us as well today. Thanks for being here, Leroy. Thank you, sir, for having me. Yeah, and we're also very happy to welcome back to the show GPB's political reporter, Stephen Fowler, who has been out in the trenches uh, for months and months reporting on everything happening in state politics. How are you, Stephen? Doing well, Bill. Always a pleasure to come on. Thanks. Um, okay, look, we have to start, Patricia, by giving a huge, well-deserved shout-out to former President Jimmy Carter on his 97th birthday. As NPR News just pointed out, the oldest living former president by about three, at least three years, I think, Um Real quickly, Patricia, I moved to Georgia from Chicago in 1983, and and I think one of the greatest privileges as a journalist I had starting way back then was getting a chance to cover Jimmy Carter pretty closely, which meant getting a chance to know him. I'm not always reporting on him in the uh, most positive terms. Nevertheless, the chance to see him up close and personal made me realize what an extraordinary man Jimmy Carter was and continues to be, Patricia.
0: Um, Well, it's so true. And those of us in Georgia know, and of course, everyone, everyone around the country knows um, just about how profound his impact has been since he stopped being the president and continued to really set this example um, to show with so many decades left in life after you've become the most powerful man in the world the real impact you can have and some, in some ways the greater impact that you can have when you're not the president anymore. Um, and Jimmy Carter has certainly shown that and not the least of which is just by his example um, of his family life, his um, ongoing romance with uh, Rosalind Carter. Um, they continue to live in their little ranch down in Plains. And it's just such an example of character um, really uh, continuing throughout a person's life.
1: Stephen, 75 years married, Rosalind and Jimmy Carter.
2: It really is something. And, you know, I went to Emory, and Emory has a special relationship with Jimmy Carter. And uh, he does a Carter Town Hall for the longest time, talking to incoming first-year students, answering questions that they have about things like foreign policy to what's his favorite flavor of peanut butter. And, it, you know, obviously I'm on the younger side, so I don't remember as many presidents at or covered as many presidents. But I'm just struck at how community-oriented he has been in the years after taking the White House. A lot of people don't have very positive views of his presidency. But in the decades afterwards, I mean, he's done so much from Habitat for Humanity builds to giving lectures to teaching Sunday school at his church. You know, it really is kind of an anomaly when you think about Jimmy Carter in the frame of our current American politics, that it would be hard to deny the positive impact he's had Since taking office. And, you know, it's a real treat to be able to be in the same state and in the same place as somebody who is just given so much like
1: that. Leroy, there has been a reframing of his presidency in the the past uh, five years, if not longer. Uh, Jonathan Alter, of course, who did this show talking about it, wrote a book in which he makes the case that, in fact, Jimmy Carter was one of our finest presidents and never got the credit he deserved for so much. Um, but one way or the other, he is a treasurer of the people of Georgia, Leroy.
3: Yeah, so his presidency, of course, were defined by uh, several things that became issues, of course, later on that, that clarified themselves. So looking at uh, what was going on at the time uh, with uh, the world's oil markets and uh, what that meant and the rise of uh, international terrorism in a way that we've had to deal with. Uh, so I think every president is defined by the crises that they have to uh, administer. But I will say this about uh, President Carter. Uh, there's a, this old saying about how you know, power will reveal who you really are. And so mm-hmm. when he relinquished power and went home back to Georgia, uh, we found out who Jimmy Carter really is. And he's someone who, could, who had a lot of, at his disposal, and he decided to serve people. And he's done so consistently, and he did not enrich himself. He went back to his hometown, and he's lived you know, a very modest life of uh, servant leadership, which is who he is. So uh, I think that uh, not only is this president being reexamined, but uh, who he is uh, has played out for decades. And I think there's new appreciation for just the decency of the man.
1: Well, we say happy birthday to former President Jimmy Carter, 97 years old. We will spare uh, our listeners, the agony of listening to us sing. Happy birthday to uh, former President Carter. Uh, Patricia, let's talk just for a moment or two about Governor Kemp and Kathleen Toomey, public health director, announcing yesterday that they plan to follow. they already have begun following the CDC guidelines, which uh, suggest booster shots for people over 65 who are in compromised uh, situations with their health, and that the uh, and that health, Uh, 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 offices, uh, state health uh, 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 and county health offices around the state are already beginning to administer the vaccine. Um, As the AJC points out this morning, uh, at the top of the front page, we remain 42nd in the nation in terms of vaccination rates. We're ninth, unfortunately, sadly, in the country in U.S. deaths over the past seven days. And we are 11th in the rankings of U.S. death rates in our pandemic. So the booster shots come none too soon for older compromised individuals.
0: Well, that's exactly right. And it really adds another layer of complication for the state to now um, administer those booster shots and also communicate to people who is eligible and for which shots are they eligible. This is not quite as easy as, um, you know, one and done or two and done. It, It really matters which booster shot you got, when you got it, how old you are, what are your other complications, are you a front-facing worker, so it's really quite a bit more complicated um, than the first go-around, and we certainly have shown that Georgians, um, some uh, were able to and willing to get vaccinated easily. There is a huge holdout group that is not willing to get vaccinated, and so the booster shots in some way are the least of our worries. The people who are really getting sick and dying are those who never have been vaccinated at all.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make, Leroy. Certainly the booster shots are are great protection for people who've already been vaccinated, Um, but uh, this state continues to somehow be reluctant to understand the value of being fully vaccinated. Yeah,
3: hesitancy at this point um, this is the it's really tougher to penetrate. But, um, you know, we're on the ground talking to people and uh, we've several times uh, gone to different parts of Georgia where we have found that some of that hesitancy is affected when people see up close and they're connected to uh, to, to loss and they're connected to, uh, you know, the, how, how quickly uh, COVID, this, this Delta variant can spread, and how infectious it is because uh, there have been places where you've seen hesitancy, but suddenly you've seen workplaces or schools, or where there's been that, and it, it feels like that's been the thing that has at least changed some minds. But even though, I mean, we've seen health, the healthcare industry talk about folks who, even at their sickest, were still uh, reluctant and still had a dim view of the vaccine. So uh, it's a difficult, difficult thing to uh, to have to get to break through, and it looks like that we are kind of at this point where uh, there's still a, a big, a large share of Georgians who remain uh, hesitant. But um, you know the effort uh, persists. And I think one thing that uh, you can read about today too in the AG, AJC and elsewhere is the Merck pill that, uh, that actually might help with uh, the folks who perhaps might be sickest with COVID. Um, so the vaccine itself, because vaccines are controversial, COVID or otherwise, but maybe other treatments such as a pill, such as some other things that are that perhaps on the horizon uh, could also help. But uh, in the meantime, uh, whenever we've got a, mute, a, a mutation like the Delta variant, uh, we're going to be susceptible so long as we're not vaccinated in sufficient numbers. So we'll be dealing with this for a while.
1: Stephen, um, the governor continues to fight against any kind of mitigation mandates, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Um, today, though, is an important deadline. Um, the uh, A number of health systems, healthcare systems across the state, hospitals, uh, have said today is a deadline for their workers to be fully vaccinated. Um, the reporting today suggests that in many of those uh, systems, Emory, uh, Piedmont, um, I think Winship, um, uh, uh, um, um, I'm sorry, what's that up in Kennesaw? I'm blocking the name. Wellstar. The healthcare, yeah, Wellstar, thank you. Um, many of their people are already vaccinated, um, but and private business is starting to come around. We know some of the big employers are. Um, but the governor continues to argue that we shouldn't have mandates.
2: Well, I and I think when you look at the numbers of places that have required, I think there's been a lot of reporting in in Georgia and elsewhere about the numbers of people that are being fired or the numbers of people that are being let go or quitting because of these mandates. But it's important to consider the denominator of things. And we what we are seeing in places that are requiring mandates is that, you know, 96, 97, 99 percent of employees are complying with that. And so we are seeing a real push. I know, you know, at Delta Airlines after they required employees to either do that or face a higher health premium cost and submit to weekly testing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people got vaccinated that were holdouts before. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting to see that the mandates where they are being put in place do work. But at the same time, there is a lot of resistance to the mandates and the governor's in a position where You know, he's already in a difficult position politically based on many, many other factors. And the way he's handled the pandemic so far has definitely been one of them. So I think he's trying not to add fuel to the fire, because if you require mandates and people revolt against them, that's an entirely different problem he's going to have to deal with.
1: Okay, thank you all for uh, that conversation. Look, this is it. Final day of the fall pledge drive here at GPB Radio. We're down to the last two pledge breaks during political rewind for the next half year or so um, we know you want more talk and less pledge and and that's what you get if you support GPB radio if you already do we love it if you don't uh, it is your contributions which keep this show moving ahead, and we'll guarantee we'll have a lot of time to talk politics in the state of Georgia and beyond. So thank you if you're already a donor. If not, here's how you can do it. GPB Radio political reporter Stephen Fowler, who, by the way, uh, you not only hear on the radio, but whose stories you can read at gpbnews.org, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Const- uh, Leroy Chapman. And political reporter and columnist. Patricia Murphy used columns you read on Fridays and Sundays, uh, Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. Okay, Patricia, you spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill as a staffer for two uh, U.S. senators from Georgia, Sam Nunn and Max Cleveland, and then you reported on uh, the Hill as a journalist. And uh, Nancy Pelosi was someone you covered particularly carefully. And, and so I want to start with you on this. Um, Last night, on the plus side, the House and Senate was able to agree on passing a continuing resolution to keep the government open uh, for at least a number of weeks until they can work out some budget resolutions, which are never easy to do. On the other hand, uh, all of the work that Nancy Pelosi hoped she would bring to a vote on the infrastructure bill collapsed overnight And although there are signs they may be starting to move in a direction for compromise, this really jeopardizes President Biden's agenda and raises questions about how it'll be uh, felt in Georgia as our elections unfold.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, With Nancy Pelosi, I've learned it's never over till it's over. And then even when it's over, unless an election has happened, it's just getting started Um, I covered her when she was uh, helping to pass the Affordable Care Act, and that was declared dead many, many times in the House, and uh, much later than anticipated, it did eventually get through um, and then uh, had a Eve vote in the Senate after that. So um, the timeline has slipped. Uh, I just cannot believe that the Democrats would get, especially that smaller infrastructure bill, through the Senate. Uh, to a majority of the majority in the House approving of it and just a handful of progressives stopping it, um, not because they disagree with that bill, but because they want more and a larger bill also. It's hard for me to believe that the Democrats can't close that deal. If they cannot, the Democrats have so many deeply embedded problems that go beyond the dynamics of Capitol Hill and um, that reflect a democratic party that is not cohesive, and is uh, neither progressive enough for conservatives nor conservative enough for progressives. Um, they do not have a governing coalition if they can't get this piece of popular legislation through. So, uh, yeah, they to do yeah. It. You- Will they do it? We don't know.
1: I apologize. I didn't mean to uh, cut you off there at the end. Um, So we're going to talk—I want to talk infrastructure in a moment. But, Stephen, before we get past this vote on the continuing resolution, which, had it not passed, would have shut down um, many uh, um, elements of of, of federal government, every Republican in the Georgia House delegation voted against the continuing resolution— What I find interesting about that, among other things, is, is, number one, they're suggesting they are willing to have a confrontation uh, over uh, continuing the government spending, largely because they don't like the bigger Biden uh, plans for spending uh, trillions of dollars. But also, history ought to teach, I would think, Republicans, that they don't do well when they shut down the government. Uh, Newt Gingrich suffered enormously when he did it back in the 90s. I will say the Democrats did it once themselves. They voted against a continuing resolution during George W. Bush's presidency uh, as a way of protesting the uh, war in Iraq. Nevertheless, it's Republicans who tend to suffer the most when when the uh, resolution doesn't pass. In this case, it did. Still, what are they thinking?
2: Well, I mean, everything is a confrontation now, especially with the margins in the House and the Senate as narrow as they are. And it's less about policy really on both sides of the aisle. It's more about the kind of feeling of confrontation. I mean, well, you look at the conversation with the debt limit and the kind of hypocrisy that different sides have put over time to do things, and this is about sending a message more than the message of uh, the government could shut down, people could be not getting paid, services could crumble in the middle of a global pandemic. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of posturing Uh, more so than you would expect from the typical Washington fanfare. And I think that's where a lot of this is coming from, because ultimately the government didn't shut down. It's keeping going. And when we come, you know, November, December, when it's time to do it again, the same thing will probably happen. But what will stick in people's minds for Republicans, they'll hope that their voters see the principles that the Republicans are standing up for or against or whatever. And same with the Democrats.
1: So um, thank you for that. Leroy, when we talk about the infrastructure bill, one of the figures that stands out uh, from, it's about a trillion dollar uh, bill, 500 billion of it is new uh, funding. One of the things that stands out in terms of how Georgia could benefit is there is $65 billion in that measure to expand high-speed internet access. And rural Georgia desperately needs High-speed internet, Leroy, and interestingly enough, those are the uh, parts of the state uh, that Republicans dominate uh, po- politically. Leroy, are you on mute?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I apologize. Uh, I, I, you're absolutely right, but I mean, I think we have a political climate where you know some of the uh, the, the fight, the partisan fight, sometimes, well, sometimes, most of the time really overshadows the delivery of good government. So when you think about the inequity of businesses and education in rural Ge- Georgia, who are at a disadvantage when it comes to something like uh, a broadband, uh, this is a solution that's that's right there uh, waiting. And uh, politics uh, very well could get in the way because the folks who uh, represent those districts are gonna be, uh, will, will, can tell folks. And I think that they will say, uh, yes, we are for helping you. However, we're not for as you know our politics today put us. We're not for what this is, which fill in the blank, it's socialism. It's it's uh, you know it's anti-capitalism. It is uh, you know something that's going to put us on the brink of financial destruction, etc. So the big political thing sometimes and, and have unfortunately just overshadowed. Uh, the delivery of good government and smart investments and infrastructure that lags in many ways. So when we think about things like, you know, the inequity of broadband, uh, and I think you could even take that further with the infrastructure bill, the fundamentals of what government should be doing, meaning that, you know, our roads, our bridges, you know, things that are aging and uh, need repair and need uh, expansion, uh, those things, it's included in this bill. But the politics, again, is, is such that uh, even benefit that perhaps might go to my district or to me personally is really overshadowed again. I think as Steven put it, uh, with, with the, 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 combat of partisan politics that never dies and seems to, to never, uh, we seem to never get tired of it.
1: So Patricia, let's just explain, explain the dynamic, which you under, you mean you've covered complicated stories like this over the years up there. Um, so the progressives in the house, basically have been holding out saying the Senate has got to act on the Biden uh, social policy program, the three plus trillion dollar social policy program, which, by the way, is three trillion dollars over 10 years. It's not like an immediate um, uh, uh, expenditure. And because you've got holdouts, uh, Joe Manchin uh, and Kristen Sinema on the Democratic side in the Senate saying they won't uh, support a three plus trillion dollar bill, the bill doesn't go anywhere in the Senate, and Biden has been working like crazy to get them on board. But because they haven't, the House progressives say, fine, you're not going to go, you're not going to get, the Senate's not going to take that up, we're not going for infrastructure. As I said in the note I sent you all yesterday, is this any way to run a railroad?
0: This is no way to run a railroad. It's definitely not a way to pay for a railroad, which would be in that one billion dollar, one trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Um, I think that it's important, though, to just hit, to pump the brakes here and understand that Kirsten Cinema, Joe Mansion, um, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, those. Centrists who are raising red flags about this spending, I don't think that they are a 3% minority view of the country. I think that is a more broadly held concern than is being given credit for it, but it's just not getting a lot of voice up in Congress. Um, The Senate will never do anything just because House members tell them to do it. Um, But you do see this really starting to spill out into the public because those progressives are a new breed who don't sit and wait for orders from Nancy Pelosi, they tweet at her and tweet at the president and tweet at senators what they're planning to do and just have those people react to them. Um, It's a very unusual new dynamic that Pelosi has not had to deal with before. And we'll see if those progressives are willing to tank that bill because they didn't get enough of all the other things that they wanted in the process.
1: Um, Stephen, Nate Cohn, who's, of course, the data cruncher at The New York Times, does a wonderful job, has a piece this morning in which he looks at polling, uh, which shows that Biden's uh, popularity is sinking rather quickly. And it's sinking among his base supporters, women, uh, African-Americans. And the question becomes, Joe Biden, one of the reasons he's elected president is because everybody uh, who voted for him said, this is a guy who knows how to work across party lines, get things done um, and that reputation is really at stake right now. And uh, the question is, is this a long-term issue for him? Or is this something that will be recoverable if they figure out a way to strike a deal?
2: Well, I mean, think about how many years ago January 2021 feels like. You know, <clears throat> there's a long time before voters set to the poll next November. There's a lot of things that can happen and will happen. And so I don't think necessarily, you know, this is a you know, doomsday scenario for the president's agenda and for what Democrats want to do. But it does make it kind of hard when a narrative starts to stick that, you know, Democrats aren't getting things done. We voted them in there. They haven't got anything done. There's no bipartisan support. So it definitely is an uphill battle. But I think in today's age, um, nothing lasts forever and everything lasts forever at the same time.
1: Okay, Uh, this is it, folks. The final, final pledge break in our fall campaign. We're going to come back from it. We're going to have plenty of time to discuss a couple of other big political issues here in Georgia. But right now is an opportunity for you to contribute to the work we do at GPB Radio, if you would uh, have the means to do it and are so inclined. Here's how. I'm especially happy to have on the show today two of the journalists who covered the Trump rally in Perry uh, last Saturday night. Excuse me. Uh, Patricia Murphy, (coughs) I I really apologize. Um, In your column uh, in Wednesday's paper about this, here is some of what you wrote. You said it's tempting to dismiss the entire evening in Perry as just another day of crazy on the Trump train. There were so many lies, exaggerations, and obfuscations littering the four-plus-hour show, it became exhausting to wade through. But you then go on to say, uh, we shouldn't take these bad actions to be uh, normal. Um, what Donald Trump is trying to do in Georgia ha- uh, has to be called out for what it is, setting up a slate of state officials to ease his way back into power here and across the country. So uh, we'll talk about that in just a sec. Stephen Fowler, you put it in somewhat more uh, colorful terms. Your story on GPB News said not since Sherman's march to the sea more than 150 years ago has Georgia seen someone so intent on burning everything to the ground, at least figuratively this time, like Trump is doing to those within his own party not that do not cater to his whim. Stephen, amplify on that. And then, Patricia, I want to get your take.
2: You know, I've spent a lot of time in the last 10 months tracking the changes and growing pains of the Republican Party in Georgia. And it's becoming more and more clear that the direction at the top of the party and at the bottom of the party is that Trumpism is the future of the Republican Party in Georgia, for better or for worse. And this rally was kind of the latest uh, element of that. I mean, you had the chair of the Republican Party open up the event. Some people complained and said he shouldn't have done that because there were primary candidate slaves being endorsed there. And he's supposed to stay neutral. You have, you know, three different candidates uh, that are picked by Trump that kind of have an antagonistic campaign towards incumbents, uh, with the exception of Herschel Walker, because there is no incumbent. It's Democrat Raphael Warnock. And you've seen just a fundamental shift in how Republicans in Georgia have operated over the last 20 years of power to making it more about Trump and what Trump says and does than what the Republican Party says and does. And policy's kind of gone out the window, and this rally is kind of evidence of that. And I, I am still surprised that Trump said that Brian Kemp uh, was so bad that Stacey Abrams would be a better governor than Brian Kemp. And even if he said it jokingly, there are people that do not take that as a joke and might not vote next November when Kemp and if Kemp is on the ballot. Patricia?
0: Yeah. So I think um, when uh, when Stephen talks about the Republican Party, I think that is um, almost entirely correct. You know, of course, the big holdouts from that rule are Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, um, and they have just gotten nothing but grief and punishment from the president for that. Um, So there are holdouts and they're high profile holdouts, but it's not helping them very much right now. Um, What I took away from that rally, having covered so many of these before, they all have the same characters. They literally have the same theme music running. But this was very new to me because this was Donald Trump for the first time that I've heard say we It was rigged in 2020. We've heard that before. Um, but we will have a more glorious victory in 2024. So he is talking now about as much as the last election, but also the next election. And on stage with him for the first time was his hand-picked slate of candidates um, for uh, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and senate, <clears throat> um, but particularly for uh, Burt Jones, for lieutenant governor, and for... Um, Jody Heiss for te- Secretary of State, they really came to Donald Trump's attention because they did not buy into the idea that, uh, that Joe Biden had won the election, because Joe Biden did win the election. But they really came to his attention um, because they were undermining the election results and calling for hearings to, um, to investigate, and I'll put that in quotes, because there were so many investigations. Um, and so this slate of candidates said, and even in Bert Jones' case said, Mr. President, if I had been lieutenant governor, we would have gotten to the bottom of all this. So fast forward, if these candidates are installed and they are Donald Trump's um, preferred candidates, they have told him, I agree with you that the last election was stolen. And the next time around, um, it will be different if we have Trump's candidates in power the result could be different, and I think that's really important for audiences and readers to pay attention to.
1: Um, Leroy, if you don't mind, given your position as managing editor at the AJC, I, I'd like to ask you a slightly different question, but then, of course, invite you to weigh in on the whole rally as you watched it unfold uh, from your uh, point of view, um, and that's this. You know, it it's interesting to watch how journalism through the Trump years has um had to make a shift. When Trump first uh, was campaigning and took office, we were reluctant, uh, most of us, to call him a liar on uh, on any number of issues. Uh, We felt there needed to be a certain amount of balance. And well, the Trump people say this as opposed to what Democrats say about that. But when you watch something like Perry unfold, in which not just the former president of the United States, but candidates he's endorsing for high-level positions in the state of Georgia, uh, talk about the fraudulent election um, dishonestly and make other claims that are not true, it's been increasingly the case that we are willing to call people out. But it's a real shift in our uh, role as journalists, I think.
3: It, It has to be. So I don't think any of us envisioned a day where you would have conspiracy theories that would uh, take on a life like this, where facts didn't matter, where politicians at the highest level of government would operate in bad faith, where you'd have a candidate who is the president of the United States. I mean, so, uh, you know, I don't want to, I mean, I understand history. I think we all do. Uh, So we don't have an expectation that no president has ever uh, told a lie. (laughs) <laughs> That's just not true. I think they all have. Uh, but uh, I don't think we've we ever envisioned uh, being in a situation where the president of the United States, now ex-president of the United States, uh, is willing to engage in a uh, in falsehoods to this degree, even understanding the, the stakes of it. And at this point now, laying the groundwork for another run at, at, at president where I think as Patricia's right where people who could be in positions of influence uh, in another close race could undermine the will of people and uh, direct uh, i think the the results toward uh, that candidate uh, no matter what so what we're talking about here are is the depth of a lot of truth and also undermining our system in a way where we could actually be in a crisis where the georgians could vote and we would have contested results, and we would have a candidate who, again, uh, would uh, look to, to to find favor uh, in, in, in elected office uh, and in our system uh, where, where he shouldn't. And so uh, those things are troubling. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to do as, as journalists is to have people understand the process. So voting in elections uh, used to be something that was boring and kind of arcane and things that people would pay a lot of attention to. And now it's not. I mean, we have to explain this to people because they're overwhelmed with the misinformation. And that's a, a big, big problem.
1: Um, Stephen and, and Patricia, um, certainly you're welcome to weigh in on what Leroy just said. But but I, I want to mention one thing that I noticed Saturday night. Uh, in the middle of all of the lies he told about Georgia's election being fraudulent and the like, I thought one of the most telling moments for me was one day after the return, the results of that uh, so called audit in Maricopa County of the votes for president there, returned a report from an organization with a leader who supported Donald Trump saying, well, in fact, Biden got more votes in Maricopa County than we'd initially thought. And yet, a day later on that stage, Donald Trump said, the Arizona recount proves. Fraud, and that was such a bald-faced lie that I thought there is no reason to think that truth has any place anymore, at least in what the pro-Trump folks say.
2: Well, you know, uh, it. There has been created this entire alternate reality, an alternate universe with an alternate set of rules about how voting is supposed to work or does work, and how votes are supposed to be counted. And that's exactly what happened in Arizona. And what we've seen here in georgia is that the truth of how elections actually work the boring and arcane part of elections is gone and everything is a conspiracy everything is evidence that things have uh, malevolently gone wrong somebody you know throwing away a piece of paper is destroying a ballot somebody getting a piece of election mail saying have you moved out of state is accused to be a ballot and people don't know how elections work and they seek out this overwhelming, overflowing fountain of information that's confirming their worst fears, and that's the state that we're in now, where people don't want to hear the real truth about how elections work, about the boring, multi-layered processes that make sure that fraud doesn't get through, and that very rarely fraud happens. And instead, we've got this ready-made diet of uh, the worst-case scenarios that just doesn't, doesn't, just doesn't reflect the reality of how elections work.
0: Yeah, I think it is. Um, it's hard. It's been hard to cover Donald Trump for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, most especially because he has cast the press as his enemy and then the inference is that. And therefore, they think that I am their enemy and they're out to get me and they're out to destroy me and their bias. Um, I think it's so crucial for reporters to um, to to call out things that are not true the Arizona audit did not confirm. In fact, he said that it confirmed that he won by a margin you wouldn't believe. Um, that is just not true. Readers and audiences need to know that. Um, what I do as an opinion columnist, I do have an opinion. It's not a partisan opinion, but it does um, come into play when something like this is happening. And uh, there's something, there's a larger dynamic going on um, that I think is really troubling. And so that's why I wrote my opinion column about what could happen. That is projecting into the future. Um, but the, the the most troubling thing that happened were just the ongoing lies, things that were just not true. And it's not fair to his own audience to say things that are not true. And they deserve to know what's accurate so that they can then um, uh, kind of continue to evaluate him on his merits.
1: Um, uh, Patricia, uh, just to pick up on something you said a couple minutes ago, Um, When when people like Burt Jones running for lieutenant governor uh, uh, essentially buy into this notion that, hey, if we were in charge, things would have turned out differently. We would have supported Trump's claims of fraud. Um, You then have to look at the fact that a Burt Jones voted for SB 202, which, in fact, gives the state the power, gives uh, Republican leaders now the power to take over local election boards as they choose to do it if they make claims of fraud. So there's a very practical on-the-ground impact to all of this.
0: Well, the great irony is that one of the other things Donald Trump said on a Saturday night was that that election bill was just no good, and it's full of holes, and it does nothing, and there will still be fraud in the future if people don't do more to prevent it. Nothing that happens in the future will be enough for Donald Trump until he's the president again. And I think that's the important piece to know. You can jump down this rabbit hole with him. But it only ends when he's the president again, um, in my opinion.
1: Uh, (laughs) Patricia Murphy gets the last word on today's show. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. Leroy Chapman, we love having a managing editor on our show. We feel very lucky to have you. And you, Stephen Fowler, thank you for not just the show today, but all you do to keep us in the know at GPB News about what's happening across the state politically. That's it for us today. Our pledge show is coming to an end. Next week, we're back to full 59-minute shows, and uh, we'll continue covering politics Uh, with smart, smart people like we had on today. One way you can help us is by supporting us. In a moment, I'll turn you over to the folks who can tell you how to do it, but not before I say have a great weekend. Please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask inside, and now get your flu shot as well as the COVID vaccine if for some strange reason you haven't done that. See you all next week.